This is the Extravagant Promises Podcast, and I'm your host, Gregory. This is a podcast about reckoning, recovery, and redemption. We share our experience, strength, and hope. Tonight, I bring you episode 19, Sacred. Before I begin with tonight's episode, I do want to, as always, remind my listeners. And first, let me just thank all my listeners out there. I see on the limited technology that I've got um, that, you know, quite a few people are listening to this podcast, and that just fills my heart with joy, and I thank you. I thank you for doing whatever it is you're doing that makes it trigger uh, uh, another listen on on the the app that I create this on <clears throat> and that just fills my heart with joy and and thank you for letting me be of service to you and and I, I would say if, if I can ask anything from anybody it would just be just pass this on to one other person who might enjoy listening and uh, by all means reach out to me if if you um know of ways I can make this podcast better. I'm sure there are many, or if there's a topic you want me to cover or a question you want answered. As always, um, this is not an AA or a 12-step meeting. It is not approved by any general service office or anything like that. It is part of my program and part of my service to my community and just trying to be that candle in the night. As Jefferson said, just allowing someone to light their candle to the to the flame and, and maybe carry that, carry that light to someone else. It's part of my recovery and part of my program, part of my salvation, part of my help and my service. Number two, I'm not a mental health professional. Please, if you're suffering, if you're sick, if you're sad, if you're suicidal, God forbid, if you're trying to hurt yourself or you're thinking about it, don't do it. Get some help. If you're thinking about drinking, don't do it. Go to a meeting. Thinking about using, if you think there's no way out, there is, there is a solution, I promise you. But I'm not a mental health professional. Get some help. There's a lot of help out there to be had, and you are loved. And if you can find yourself in the right hands with the right person, that person can be an advocate for your survival, an advocate for all that's good inside you. And believe me, it it life can get so much better. Third, um, Please respect my anonymity and respect the anonymity of anyone else who listens to this and shares it. It's the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, and I certainly encourage you to reach out to me, but please protect me uh, like I protect you and just help each other. Uh, Stay anonymous. Fourth, I will never accept any remuneration or compensation or solicit any kind of contribution from anybody. This is a free podcast. It will always be free. So with that said, let's get it on. Tonight is going to be hopefully short and sweet, but um, the first of many uh, times that I will touch on this topic and the first of many times that I will touch about this person in my life. Um, and uh, I'm in, I've titled this Sacred. A few years back, um, 
Fred Rogers, the famous Mr. Rogers of um, morning television, kids fame, who apparently was a pretty amazing guy. I will say, as a kid, I never really liked the Mr. Rogers show. I thought it was kind of cool, but but it just it just seemed a little off to me in terms of my personal tastes. You know, I didn't dig it. Um, I didn't I didn't like the Punch and Judy look uh, on the characters, the the puppets and things, kind of. And so I didn't really gravitate towards it. Um, but you know, the truth is, is that he was a pretty fabulous person and a pretty amazing person when it came to kids and education and being a good human being, and. Um, and I guess maybe about 15, less than 20 years ago, but 15 years ago, he was a graduate of Dartmouth College up in New Hampshire, Ivy League school, obviously very famous. And um, he did a commencement address there. And I'd like to read you part of that commencement address because it talks about what we're going to talk about tonight. He said, I have a lot of, of framed things in my office which people have given to me through the years. And on my walls are Greek and Hebrew and Russian and Chinese. And beside my chair is a French sentence from Sanspare's Little Prince. It reads, L'essential est invisible pour les yeux. What is essential is invisible to the eye. And pardon me if I butchered the French. Well, what is essential about you? And who are those who have helped you become the person you are? Anyone who has ever graduated from a college, anyone who has ever been able to sustain a good work, has had at least one person, and often many, who have believed in him or her. We just don't get to be competent human beings without a lot of different investments from others. I'd like to give you all an invisible gift, a gift of a silent minute to think about those who have helped you become who you are today. Some of them may be here right now. Some may be far away. Some, like my astronomy professor, may even be in heaven. But wherever they are, if they've loved you and encouraged you and wanted what was best in life for you, they're right inside yourself. And I feel that you deserve quiet time on this special occasion to devote some thought to them. So let's just take a minute in honor of those that have cared about us all along the way. One silent minute. Whomever you've been thinking about, imagine how grateful they must be that during your silent times, you remember how important they are to you. It's not the honors and the prizes and the fancy outsides of life which ultimately nourish our souls. 
It's the knowing that we can be trusted, that we never have to fear the truth, that the bedrock of our lives from which we make our choices is very good stuff. So I ask you, my listeners, who was on your mind? Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Was it your brother? Was it a friend? Was it the caregiver? Was it a boss? Was it a comrade in arms? Was it a teammate? Is it your best friend? It's probably not a lot of people, but it's enough. Every one of us has had somebody. I might even think for a moment, and you know, that those of us who, who had to sometimes walk a path all alone, that maybe, maybe we weren't alone, that we carried in our hearts that, that person, or maybe, maybe our higher power, you know, sort of like the, the proverb or the discussion about the, about the, the tale about the footprints in the sand where Jesus carried you in the sand, where life and the waves were getting on you. I know who that person is for me. And there, there, there are a number of them, and I, I will try to touch on them, but the person who first comes to mind for me, who always comes to mind for me, was a woman, and her name was Aldegunda Togan Waman. I'm pretty sure her name doesn't appear anywhere on the internet or in any books anywhere. So I'm pretty sure that I'm safe and my anonymity is safe by saying her name. But she was my mother in all the ways that your spiritual and caregiving mother can be. She was not my biological mother. But that was the only thing that separated her from being my mom. And in that way, we knew her as Ding. That was her nickname. And Ding, she, she raised me. She cared for me. And she loved me. I, I first came to know Ding when I was... I know that I I came to know her before I knew memory, you know. So in my life, there is no life before Ding. There is no before Ding and after Ding. There will be an after Ding because she's passed on. But there was never a before Ding in my life. I was no older than two years old. I have no memory of any life before her. And I don't want to know a life before her because she was everything in my life. And I can say that, you know, in a lot of ways, she's, she is proof of a higher power and she's proof of God's love of me because there were so many things in life that I received that I think the outside world would look at and say, oh, you had it all. Oh, you had this, you had that, you got this, you were physically gifted there, you were mentally gifted there, you had financial support. 
But you know, there's just that basic thing that no matter how rich or poor you have, you are, you know, everybody can have, but not everybody does have. And that's that true love of another human being, the true love by another human being. Of what he said of of that wanted what was best in life for you, that worried about you, that nurtured and nourished you when you were hurt, when you were down, when you were little, when you were hungry, when you were sad, when you were joyous, when you tried to be the best that you could be. That was the person you were trying to please, that you were doing it, that you were saying, I honor you. You know, we all have somebody like that, I hope. Um, and if we don't, we know that we know that the God of your understanding, he or she or it is there for you. Maybe there is someone that you just haven't recognized that wants what's best in life for you. Not for them but for you. And there are times when I feel like, you know, I deserve, I, I have had a lot of great things in life and, I, and for most of my life, I struggled with whether I deserved it, whether I earned it, whether it was given to me. And I've really struggled with the, what I deserve, what I did to deserve this person in my life and what I did to deserve their love because it was profound So the reason that Dan came into my life, and, and there's a lot of a lot of deep, dark secrets about it in some ways, you know, that you know, Dan came into my life because my father was is a Vietnam veteran. Um and my father was stationed in the Philippines as a naval officer, and he would you know, mostly stationed in the Philippines as a doctor, and he would go into Vietnam and come back and, and, you know, treat wounded soldiers and take care of service members and all that. And um, part of the, 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 the thing about this particular base was you could have your family come to live there, and and we we did. We I was very, very little, and my father was very, very young, and he and my mother and my brother and I went and we lived in the Philippines. And part of it was that young officers or officers were expected to employ members of the local population who were, you know, and give jobs and things like that so that to support the local economy. And, you know, there's something very wartime about that. There's something very colonial about that. The Philippines was a colony, Spanish colony, I believe, and there was the American protectorate. I don't know if it was really a colony, but there is, you know, there's a lot of that going on in the Philippines and a lot of uh, pre, um, well, I'd say colonial era um divisions and and racism and very interesting culture you know the philippines is giant archipelago 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 uh over i think over a thousand islands um and ding was from you know from the south from an area called mindanao which is you know uh peopled with uh the 
native Filipinos, you know, you know, different cultures, uh, Spanish, uh, the Spanish colonized the Philippines, as did other countries, I suppose. I don't know a ton about the history, but I know that certain areas, you know, the Spanish, the more Spanish-influenced Filipinos were, you know, in power in Manila and places like that, and down in the south. Um, Filipinos are, you know, uh, some tend to have a, a darker skin color, um, and, uh, you know, whatever, you know, I think it, it uh, and, and hopefully I'll, I'll, a lot of my thoughts on this will come through and maybe I'll just need to do multiple podcasts about it because it's so powerful to me. Um, but what, something happened in Ding's life. She came from a rural area down in, you know, South Cotabato and, uh, Coronadal, I think, is one of the areas, uh, cities down there, and, and General Santos City, and down down in the southern part of the Philippines. And it's a it's an unsafe place these days, and has been for a long time for Westerners. And it's one of those things that it's one of my my dreams is to go there if it were safe, and I could go there and be protected. You know, I would love to go there, and 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 just experience life down there. Um. But Ding, you know, Ding, uh, Ding came to Manila or the areas uh, maybe around Manila. We lived off a base called Sangley Point. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore, I don't believe. Um, there were some big bases in, in, in the Philippines. It was a big military area uh, after World War II. You had Subic Bay, which was one of the biggest naval bases in the world, a deep water port, I believe. And then you had, um, you know, the embassies and things in Manila. And you had Clark Field, which was a big Air Force base where the bombers would fly over into um, Vietnam and bomb Vietnam. And and they would also, that's where the planes would come back loaded with bodies and things that were, you know, my dad would have to help try to treat wounded soldiers and things and Marines. And... Um, Sangley Point was one of the naval bases, and one of the squadrons was based there. And um, so, you know, my father employed several Filipino uh, women who to help take care of the family, and and um, and that's a that's a great story too. I mean, I would love to share some of the stories that my father experienced in in that era. You know, his, his experiences as a doctor in wartime and in a place like the Philippines and in Vietnam and things and what he saw and what he did. And he was very young. I mean, he was in his early 20s, mid-20s. You know, we're not talking about some 45-year-old guy. We're talking about like a 25-year-old guy, you know. I mean, some crazy stories, delivering a baby in the South China Sea, you know, things like that on a boat, on, on like a launch, you know, a small boat. Um. But Ding came to came to live with us, and my brother was only six months old, and so she immediately gravitated towards us. And she was, um, you know, probably in her early late twenties, early thirties, and you know, we she she just started taking care of us, and um, you know, I, I I didn't know a life before her. I, I, I just don't, didn't. And, um, and there, like I said, there are a lot of different, and, and I hope I can get through this podcast, you know, in one piece, but I just think about that sacred relationship of, of who wanted what was best for you. We quickly became like her children. And, um, that was 
manifested in many ways, um, but but one particular incident occurred that cemented her relationship with our family and cemented our the lore and the legend of Deng. I mean, Deng became a legend in this country, I mean, in the United States, and just was beloved. People came to her funeral. You know, all people from all walks of life, all nationalities and races and origins and, and things like that came and, and paid their respects to Deng. Bankers and politicians, you know, in the little town where where she lived um, with my parents. And um, sorry if I get a little emotional. It's, it is very tough, but I'm, I'm so inspired by it. And I'm trying to work through and heal. And, and I'm obviously still still hurting from her passing, you know, but, but I'm just so blessed to have had somebody like this in my life. And I think that God looked out for me, you know, that woman never, never laid a hand on me. Uh, I mean, she might've spanked me when I was little just to kind of, you know, but she, she chased me around with an ax once, like, you know, but I knew Ding would never hurt me. Uh, but, um, but so back to the Philippines, we were a little, we, we apparently lived outside of the base for a bit, and there was a lot of civil unrest. And apparently someone who was like the chief of police or some kind of law enforcement chieftain and a political chieftain were rivals, and they got into a um, internecine war, so to speak, that resulted in gangland-type violence. And apparently there was a shootout um, that came to a crossroads. These, these factions were in a gunfight, and it came to uh, the, the, a, a crossroads or a corner of, a, of this town or city or whatever, wherever Sangley Point was. And um, our house was at that crossroads. And I do have a recollection of lying in my parents' bed. And I remember saying, I hear firecrackers or I hear something. And we picked up that it was gunfire. And I don't remember anything else other than I, I remember the red light on the interior of the military vehicle that evacuated us. I don't know if it was a Humvee or whatever a Humvee would have been in 1972 or whatever or 71, but it was right around there. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot of memories of, of the Philippines other than that red light. And I remember being in that bed and being like, it sounds like gunfire or it sounds like firecrackers. Um, but the, what has been told to me is that we were pretty quickly pinned down inside this house and we were taking fire. And uh, not that we were, but that gunshots were going through the house. There, were, there was a, a gunfight going on outside. And my father had called the base to try to come get us. And I guess that's when Marines from the base came and evacuated us. But apparently my brother's room, my brother was still in a crib. And his room was cut off by gunfire and they were trying to get us out. And Ding, <clears throat> whew, 
Ding ran through the gunfire and got my brother out. And I'm told that moments later that room was ripped apart with bullets. And if she hadn't done that, he would have been killed. And you can imagine what what that knowledge growing up will do for you in terms of both a loyalty but also a deep abiding sense of obligation. Um, so ding, ding, uh, you know, my dad, mom, you know, we were getting ready to get, I guess we had lots more experiences and things and the good ones and ding was part of our family. You know, we were there for two years at least, I think. And then, you know, it was time to come back to the States and ding, ding said she wanted to come with us. And so ding was, uh, Ding was had had legal uh, immigration rights, and she came with us to the United States and uh, and moved in with us and lived with us. And you know, I always just kind of looked at Ding as part of the family, you know, <laughs> and, and and it was just you know it was one of those relationships that. that you know, it never really had a name, you know, and, and, and people would be like, well, she's your nanny later on. And, and, you know, she'd go, yeah, I'm, I'm their nanny, you know, like that. And, and I did, you know, and, and it was, it was strange. You know, Ding was, Ding was a dark brown skin color. She had straight, she had, she never cut her hair. I never saw her cut her hair. Her hair was like as long as her body almost. She had this beautiful, thick, long black hair. And, um, you know, um, and it was interesting stories about, you know, about Ding raising us and all. But um, I just, you know, I never, it was, it was, I never really, I don't know. Ding wasn't a nanny. Ding wasn't, Ding wasn't an auntie. Ding was my mom. You know, Ding would shelter me when things weren't good at home, you know. And um, I don't want this just to be a sob story about this. This is about that sacred person in your life who wanted what was best for you and honoring them. I know, you know, she she when she died, she had Alzheimer's or dementia pretty significantly, but she always remembered me. And, um, you know, I don't know if she knew I was sober, but I know she would be proud that I was sober. I know she'd be happy that I was finding peace in my life. Um, you know, Ding, uh, so Ding came back and lived with us. And um, and I, I really, you know, just thinking this through, I think this is going to have to be something where maybe I share stories about Ding um, as it pertains to recovery and, and life and, and, and the cherished sacred memories and things. I can't fit it all into one podcast, that's for sure. Um. You know, what I'll say is that um, there are so many deep memories of that wonderful woman. And I could say that I never cursed her. I never called her a name. I never swore at her. I would have easily and gladly given my life for her. And I know that she would have easily and gladly given her life for me. And she she exemplified and illustrated that on numerous occasions. 
you know, and, and, and we suffered, she suffered and I, along with her suffered intense prejudice and xenophobia and ignorance on the part of people who, who just are goddamn so small minded, you know, just because someone's a different skin color than you, you know, you don't get to eat in a restaurant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Well, that's an interesting story. I can tell you. It broke my heart twice, you know, being called, I would be called the N-lover, you know, N-word lover, you know, things like this at school. Um, people to ask me, you know, we hear you, your parents have a slave, you know, just horrible stuff, you know. And, and But my brother and I, we love Dang. Um. Boy, I got to apologize. I'm sorry. I've just been kind of a little more emotional about this than I thought I would be. And I'd love to, you know, it just it started that, you know, it started, I, I never knew a life before her. I never thought I'd have a life after her. I just couldn't imagine if she ever was not part of my life. And I'll tell two quick anecdotes and then I'll, I'll, I'll close and, um, and we'll just make this part one, you know, part one. Maybe if people are into it, you know, I can hear, yeah, we're, we're into it, keep going. Or maybe say, hey, knock it off. We, we want to hear something else. That's cool, too. Um, you know, this isn't about me getting it off my chest or anything. But, you know, I, I'll, I'll tell you, um, I remember... Um, I remember when... Ding. Um, <laughs> let me let me say something that's positive here. You know, like first of all, she was the best damn cook I have ever. I mean, you know, we were so spoiled because Ding could cook anything anywhere. I remember watching her create this gorgeous three alarm chili. The Carlisle Hotel. They had. We were in a suite at the Carlisle Hotel back in the '80s, and they had like a kitchenette in the suite, you know. And I don't know where she got the ingredients. I don't know where she got what, but she fired up this amazing chili, and she could just do that, you know. She could just make anything from anything, and she was very frugal. She never asked for anything. Um, we would try to give her diamonds and gifts or whatever. <coughs> she would always tell us how much she hated it and ne never wanted us to give her a gift. <coughs> um, she very frugal, very, very, very uh, parsimonious, you know, and um, very, very simple and, and uh, in the good way, not simple-minded. But, you know, she would avid reader. She could name the capital of every state in the country. She could name all the presidents. Um, never learned to drive would walk everywhere and I would just say, dang, come on, let's learn, you know, but I would take her, I'd take her to the store, you know, and, um, and she just, you know, she's very humble, never wanted anything. Um, she just wanted me to be happy and I loved her. I really did. But, you know, here's a good story. So, um, we were, my grandparents lived in Virginia. Well, well, two of them lived in, in, 
my great my my grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side lived in West Virginia, and my grandmother on my dad's side lived in Virginia. And we were living in New Orleans after the war. Uh, my dad was finishing in his residency, and we were we were going to go up and spend a month or a couple weeks. I don't even know how long, but a, a while with with the grandparents, my brother and me. And my dad put us on the train, probably the Crescent City or one of those, you know, uh, that goes from New Orleans to Washington or thereabouts. And he didn't, you know, we didn't have a sleeper car or anything like that. We just had like, we were, I just remember we were in the chairs, you know, <laughs> probably my, 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 even then I had a taste for first class and I was a little bit probably raw that I wasn't, you know, that I was sleeping in the chair. But it was interesting because dang, you know, my brother was born with, um, significant, uh, orthopedic issues in his legs. I don't know exactly what, but he, he had crooked legs and he had to wear braces and things. He was, you know, he's a big, tall strapping guy now. And, you know, you know, man about town, but back then he was a crippled little kid, you know, run to the litter, so to speak. (laughs) And, uh, and Ding, of course, took to him, you know, and treated him like he was number one. And I was I was number two. At least that's how I always felt. I always felt like I was sort of second. I was second banana in Ding's eyes, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and But I, I, I knew she'd never I, – I, I know that wasn't really true, but I always felt like she loved him more. And, you know, but um, – so we were in these chairs, and so I was sitting in the front row, and they were sitting right behind me, Ding and, and my brother, next to each other. And um, these people got on the train. Ding, Ding was was tiny. I mean, she she couldn't have weighed more than a hundred pounds ever, and she wasn't more than probably five foot two, maybe five foot one. I don't. Even, I mean, she was she was so thin, you know, and and little. And um, but she was fierce, you know, and and uh, she um she would carry a knife with her and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and, and these people got on the train and they came up to us and they started harassing us, um, telling us that we, I don't know where they got on, maybe in Mobile or somewhere, maybe in, you know, Atlanta. I don't even know, you know, somewhere between Washington and New Orleans, wherever the train goes. And they were saying that we were in their seats and we needed to get up and give them their seats. And we were not in their seats. We had our own, you know, and we had tickets or whatever. But we were two little boys and ding, you know. And you know, again, I don't, I don't know if, um, you know, the racial components played a part in it or not, because you know we were white and ding was very dark skinned, and and you know, that maybe they thought they could bully us for that. I don't know. You know, we we encountered so much racism in our life. Um, as a result of our relationship that, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I have my views on it, but anyway, we were probably just, we looked vulnerable because she's real little and we're tiny kids, you know, it's like, Hey, we can just kick these kids out, whatever. And she got up and she pushed us behind her and she said, if you don't leave us alone, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> And I don't know, but if you know, if, you, if, a, if a diminutive Filipino woman looks you in the face like that and she's holding on to her purse and you don't know what's in that purse and she says, I'm going to kill you, you best just go move along. <laughs> and, and you know what? They did. They moved along. That was just kind of one of those little funny stories that I remember. Um, but, you know, years later, and, and again, I, I think this is going to have to be a multi, multi-part podcast because there's so much here. 
about this thing that, you know, who wanted what was best in my life and how unbelievably lucky I was to have her in my life and how I wish she was still here with me. Um, my brother, um, was in undergraduate in college and he, um, he's a real high performing professional now. And, um, it, it, to the amazement of all of us, but, um, but, and I won't get into what profession he's in or anything like that, but, but what I will say is that in his first year of college, he was not performing especially well. And, um, he needed to go to summer school cause he was on academic probation and he needed to get some credits and some very difficult prerequisite type classes that he had not shown much aptitude for. Maybe it was inclination or aptitude. I don't know. But my father, I think he smoked out pretty quickly what the problem was. <laughs> and it wasn't about aptitude. It was about inclination. And he said, you know, um, I'm going to ask Ding to come live with you up there at school this, this semester and um, see if, if that doesn't straighten, straighten you out. And Ding moved in with my brother, and uh, and lo and behold, someone made straight A's, and and then um, so you know years later when I was in graduate school, and again I've had a bunch of stories in between, and one where you know I ended up in the hospital before I went to graduate school, I ended up in the hospital in New York and almost died of a, um, I think they think it was the flesh eating bacteria that Vibrio vulnificus, so highly fatal. You know, I was young, I was healthy. And I think that's the only reason that I, I survived because the doctors sure didn't know what, what it was until I was out of the woods and Ding just, she, she pretty much just came in and lived in my hotel, my, my, my hospital room with me um, and cared for me. And then I had to go home and convalesce for weeks. I mean, it took me a while to really to even be able to walk around the block and all this stuff. And Ding was with me the whole time. And uh, I'll never forget when I, I put my arm around her and she would walk with me on the hospital halls with the IV bag and all. And just I knew Ding was there with me, you know. And she was sleep. She slept in the hospital room with me. She was like, "I'm not leaving your side." So, again, I apologize. Um, so it came around when I was in grad school, and again, I won't get into what grad school or all, any of that stuff, but maybe one day. But. Um, I needed some help. You know, I was like, man, this is tough. And I, if I don't do my very, very best, you know, things aren't going to go my way. And so, um, so I asked my dad, I said, dad, you know, you think it'd be cool. You think you could talk to Ding and maybe I could talk to Ding. At first I talked to Ding, I'm sure. And said, Hey Ding, could you, could you come help me? She was like, talk to your dad. You know, so, so I talked to dad. I said, dad, can, can Ding come live with me, you know, and help me out? And, um, and she did, you know, and, and, uh, and that became a thing every semester Ding would come live with me and, 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 you know, because I, I, I knew and she knew I would never, I would never, she didn't have to say anything. She didn't have to say anything. She didn't have to say you need to study. She didn't have to say you don't go out. She didn't have to say don't drink. She didn't have to say anything. She was just there. I didn't want to disappoint her, you know? 
And I made really good grades in grad school. I did very, very well. And when I took, you know, professional exams and things like that, Ding would come, you know, be right there with me, you know, and, and we'd go to the, you know, one time I had to take one of these big professional licensure exams in, you know, Roanoke, Virginia and, you know, the civic center or something. And, you know, it's like, and, uh, uh, Dane came with, we stayed at the holiday inn or something in Salem or somewhere like that. And, you know, and we had our food prepped up and, you know, and just never, never had to raise her voice at me. You know, I mean, I'm sure she had to yell at me when I was a kid. I was an idiot doing stupid stuff and I can regale you with other stories, but you know, I just wanted to do well for her, you know, and when I graduated from grad school, I remember I handed my diploma to her. She was right there beside me when I got it. And I said, this is for you. You, you, this, I did this, not for you, but like you, this, I wanted to make you happy. I wanted to make you proud. And she was proud. You know, she really was. I, she had a big smile on her face when I got that diploma from a very, very good and competitive place. And I couldn't have done it without her. Anyway, I've been going for a bit here. I said this one was going to be a little shorter. And so I, I, I'll wrap this up. Um, I'd like everybody to use that minute that we talked about, that essential minute, what was essential in you that's invisible. You know, they loved you. They encouraged you and wanted what was best in life for you. Who was that person to you? Are they here? Are they in heaven? Are they looking down on you? You were loved. You are loved. You deserve. Don't ever forget that. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. God, tonight... Please help everyone who listens to this podcast and everyone who's sick and suffering inside and outside the rooms. Let them find that essential thing inside them, that person in their life. Let them know who it was or who it is. The person who, who loved them unconditionally, who wanted what was best in life for them. And let us all honor that person. Whether they're in heaven with you or they're down here, let us find them and honor them. Amen.